0: You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, Maui Mayor Mike Victorino and the head of the county's first Department of Agriculture, Rogine cully RC, are uh, joining us for our roundtable talk today. Good morning, Mayor.
1: Good morning, and thank you for having us. Uh, I'm so proud to be Cully this morning to talk a little bit about our new Department of Agriculture. First of all, let me say it in this manner. Agriculture is one of our main diversifying of our economy. But we want to grow crops that are edible. So with big farmers, small farmers, our whole presence there with this department is for advocacy so that they can advocate to federal and state departments of ag the needs of our county and our our farmers. Secondly, a mentoring program. We need to start training younger farmers to take over. Average age is 60 plus of our farmers on Maui, and they need to and want to retire so we need to get that and thirdly is helping them build good business models. You know, each crop and each type of a a farmer and rancher, and I should throw the ranchers in, I apologize. I'll never forget our ranchers. They produce much of the food we consume on Maui, and we can make it a larger percentage, but most importantly is having them with a good model, a business model, that they can thrive, not just survive. Because many farmers, they survive from year to year, and it makes it hard. Many of them go find part-time jobs, or even full-time jobs to get benefits, and to make the income they need for their households.
2: Well,
0: so. you've said that, you know, initially when this idea came up a couple of years ago, you were a little concerned that this was going to create more red tape. Yes, regulatory, um, yes. But you know, your county stretches three different islands and, and they're different islands and they have different needs. I mean, did you feel that State agricultural officials weren't really, I guess, doing enough for your farmers?
1: I might say they weren't doing enough. Not that they weren't doing anything, you know. So let's make that clear, Catherine. I'm not throwing anybody under a bus. But I would really feel that we needed special attention in these areas, which the Department of Ag statewide are not really in tune. They, they do some advocacy and they do some help with business models, but we needed a specific R-county. Department of Ag to take care of our county needs and like you said we have three islands the only county that has actually four islands we you count Kahoholabe, but three islands that have populations that have really different ideas on where they're going you have Lanai with Mr. Ellison and regenerative and all kinds of controlled farming Big Quonset hunt type farming where everything's controlled. No bugs. No. You can grow same crop that may take a year. They can grow twice or three times a year the same type of crop. So we have that as one part of it. We have Molokai that's been a real hub for our agricultural industry for many years. We need to help them with infrastructure and in Kali. We'll take a little more on that. And then Maui with Manipono, the big guy in town, but also all the small farmers we have. We have hundreds of small farmers that need our help. So this Department of Ag, the dream is, first of all, to help them become stable productive farmers thriving you know that they, they make some money and not have to always go off somewhere else to make enough to live secondly providing crops fresh Grown produce, ranchers, meat, and all of that, pig, whatever, produced by our farmers and our ranchers right there in Maui and Molokai and mm-hmm. Lanai.
0: And Kali, jump in here. And you, you prefer Kali? <laughs> yes, <laughs> okay. I prefer Kali. <laughs> so talk about this. I mean, you know, because you're from Molokai, mm-hmm. and so you know, you know. I mean, we've had Walter Riddy, you know, on the show talking about, you know, DLNR needs to help us with mullet so we can help our uh, fish ponds come back, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I mean, you know, what are your what are your ideas? So
3: when you look at an agriculture community, in my eyes, I look at a community that has the infrastructure that supports the agriculture to facilitate their production. So, for example, on Molokai, we have a slaughterhouse. We have a USDA inspector. We have a thriving agriculture cooperative that's been there since the 70s, very successful. We also have a cooling plant. So those are the kind of infrastructure which supports the community. And we also have Kumu Farms, which is uh, also extended to Maui. But Kumu Farms also helps the organic papaya growers. And it's like a consolidated exporting of everybody's fruit. So... Those kinds of important infrastructures support that one community, and each community in our county has different needs. So I look at
0: that as, like, the perfect supportive structures. Right. I mean, we've heard a lot about food hubs. Got a lot of those different types of things set up here on Oahu just to try and connect the farmers to the market. You folks have talked about connecting with our, our young people. You know, mm-hmm. I think at one time, Lahaina Luna had an ag program. I think it was a boarding program way they back when. Yeah, they, they still,
1: still have, have it. still have it. But it's been scaled mm-hmm. down a lot. So, yes, but they yeah. still have it. You same
3: know, w-
0: for Molokai High.
3: Mm-hmm. It's been scaled down, you know, way back when they were really thriving. Like, my father remembers, you know, having to do ag chores and before school. And at the same time, there were homesteaders in the community that were also family farms. And everybody that was just part of life and I feel like if we can just bring that back and integrate that into the young people's lives then it's second nature and you know it's not like they're not used to it because they're surrounded by agriculture but I feel like people judge agriculture as toil in the soil when agriculture can provide so many different kinds of jobs instead of Working in the field, you can work on the tractors. You can be a mechanic. You can do the science. And, I mean, it's really diverse and even
0: really specific if you want to just work on insects. Well, do you think we we need to do more with 4-H, creating those types of ag fairs and just some excitement around mm -hmm. that in the schools? I think our county does well at supporting the
3: youth in agriculture, but I think after... They're done high school. There's no continuity. And even though we have the support system with UH Maui College, having the egg, I think we can probably work on or think of creative measures that maybe tie in technology. You know, now the main line is looking at driverless tractors. Uh, drones, if we can maybe tie in technology in agriculture that might be a way to bring in the youth because a lot of people like robotics. A lot of the young people are into robotics. It's just going to take some creative education.
1: This is why we've been advocate for career paths in agriculture. Wellness is another thing we talk about, health and wellness on Maui because I think those two play in tandem a great opportunity to have quality visitors coming to get well or stay well. It will teach our people, these people are paying big money to do, we can do right there. Right there you can learn. And these are career paths that, like Kali is saying, you know, they go to high school, they go feature Future Farmers of America and all these different programs and then boom, when they get out, there's nothing for them. The career path would be right into UHMC, University of Hawaii at Mario College, and that way they can then expand themselves and also technology is something that I've seen Pono with their tractors because I had an opportunity a couple of times to sit in a tractor, just program, the tractor did everything. <laughs> the only thing I had to do is make sure I made the turns. But beyond that, it was wonderful. So we are in a different age of farming. But again, if we can show them good business models where they can thrive, because, you know, if you're not making money, you're going to give it up. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you only make money being a farmer, but you got to make enough to to survive, you know, yeah. and farmers need that, right?
3: Yeah, what Mayor is trying to say, I believe, is our farmers, our livestock people, Ranchers. they're good at producing what they do, but they can be better if they get better business
0: management skills. On Maui... You've got a very vocal anti-GMO group. You know, we've Mm. got lots of folks that are into organics. You know, a lot of farmers that want their share of the water. And, you know, so I don't know, do you see this office advocating or getting involved, let's say, when the water rights issue goes before the land board or at the Supreme Court? I mean, do you see them stepping in?
1: I believe they will be an integral part of this whole process. And I would like to see them, along with our Department of Water, work more collaboratively. You see, there's so much more they can do. But, you know, before I throw everything at them, I need them to get the first step is organizing and getting what we call the first phase, which is advocacy and grants. There are so many USDA, FDA, other grants out there that farmers could take advantage of. These grants really help you develop your farm in technology, in regeneration, or whatever, safety, right, Carly? Safety, education. You know, workforce, yeah. yeah.
3: Workforce development.
1: So, you know, Collie and I, we share a lot in common, mm-hmm. and that's why it just I was mesmerized when I first met this lady. You know, she's the first female director for Molokai ever in the history of Maui County. You know, one of the things I've been really proud of, we had like the first prosecuting attorney was female. We never had one before. Now we have Kali, first one from Molokai. I'm proud to say that our administration has been open, we've been transparent and we've looked for the best. And this is what we have, some of the best people. And our you know, our deputy Western Yap brings a lot to the table too, right, Kali? And mm-hmm. they do they they really they hit it off, the two guys. They're clicking.
0: And so uh, when is your first meeting with the farmers? We're
3: looking in August. No set date yet. We want to make sure that we are inclusive of everybody.
1: You know, when you talked about farming and a lot of people on organic, there's still the conventional farmers. There are the seed crops. How do we intend and work together, you know, and not be adversarial but be collaborative and protect the well-being? You know, whatever your concerns are, let's make sure they're met. You know, if you want safe zones, we can do that. We can do anything we need to do, but it's under our control. This is why water becomes a real challenge sometimes because you get the sea worm, you know, the State Department of Water that tells us and designates area and that changes everything. No offense to the state. But I want home rule as much as possible because it is important that we make the decision based upon the people that live there, work there, and raise their families okay. there. Okay,
0: mm-hmm. well, you've got some uh, big challenges ahead. <laughs> Congratulations. And I know Thank you. you still are awaiting the approval of the county council. Yes, I
3: um, am. We're hoping that will be next
1: month. You know, okay. By next month, they'll have the hearing. And I'm very optimistic. This young lady, when you read her resume, what she's done and where she's been, I hands down say you'd be. It'd be crazy not to say yes to her.
0: Well, good luck to you, and (laughs) thank thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you,
1: Catherine, for having us. God bless you, and have a great day. Okay, you too. Aloha. Aloha.
0: And that was Maui Mayor Mike Victorino and Maui's first Agriculture Director, Kali Arce, who both were in our studios this morning. we think about agriculture or one of the things that could help farmers is cutting costs there are reduced water rates but what about electricity that is the subject of today's reality check honolulu civil beats reporter thomas heaton on the line today good morning thomas
4: good morning thanks for having me
0: yes so uh tell us about your story uh, you know how did this whole idea get started
4: So this all kind of started around 2019. So at that time, there were some investors looking to come to Hawaii and perhaps start up um, some kind of greenhouse operations. Um, And one of those people, uh, sorry, one of those organisations was Costco, which some people might remember. Um, And this prompted lawmakers to look into perhaps trying to help them come, uh, because of course uh, Hawaii is one of the most expensive states for, um, if not the, sorry, the most expensive state for uh, electricity. Um, And that's the thing with these protected agriculture uh, organisations, is that they need a lot more energy to be able to essentially do their jobs and um, provide the increased output that actually comes with these operations.
0: And so what happened to this bill? So this
4: bill, it was enacted, um, and over the past year, uh, it became Act 203. Over the past year, uh, HIKO, the Hawaii Electric, has been um, running through the docket and co- configuring some, dis- uh, some preferential electricity rates. Uh, what's come out in the wash is essentially... Um, rates between 1.2 cents per kilowatt hour up to 4.9 cents per kilowatt hour Um, and critics are saying that this is essentially a symbolic move because it's just not enough to help these farmers um, save save the money that they need so that they can have viable businesses and operations Uh, it amounts to a few hundred dollars a year and if you look at the monthly bills you're looking at a few thousand a month so it's it's really being seen as kind of not in the spirit of the original uh, bill and the act's intentions.
0: Well so then what do users have to subsidize uh, this if we want to give farmers more of a break?
4: Yeah so essentially what happens with these preferential uh, rates is that the savings that are given to the farmers, uh, it is offset with the other ratepayers. So essentially it comes down to a bit of a question of how much you're willing to help. Uh, so HECO has kind of kept it low. Uh, the Hawaii Electric's kept it kind of low because it's pr- uh, very aware of the fact that ratepayers might not want to be paying too much. Uh, but critics of the um, of the rates, of the proposed rates are saying well actually this is really negligible. If we give them a 20% discount then it, it might be a nickel extra on the ratepayers bill each month and even if you increased that uh, preferential rate to cut their bills in half the farmers bills in half it would cost about 13 cents per person, sorry, per rate payer. So it it essentially comes down to the question of how much are you willing um, and how much are rate payers willing to pay a little bit extra to help these farmers get more local food into the food system.
0: And does it vary from island to island, you know, who who would get more of a break? Because, I mean, I know on some of those islands, the rates are quite high.
4: Mm, yes yes they do so on um big island is 1.2 cents per kilowatt hour that is the proposed discount oahu is 1.8 and then it goes up and uh it's in accordance with each um island so uh molokai i think gets the highest and that's 4.9 cents per kilowatt hour
0: yeah interesting Well, well we'll see where this goes if it gets massaged um but interesting um uh you know issue to consider as we try and figure out how much do we help our farmers. But thank you so much, Thomas.
4: No, thank you. Thank you. We should know in the next few months if the Public Utilities Commission agrees with Hawaii Electric.
0: Alrighty. Well, that was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's reality check. You can read his story on this issue. Uh, Head to civilbeat.org.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event, Palette, on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org.
0: For their next primetime public hearing, the January 6th committee will take a look at President Trump's actions on the day of the insurrection. Donald Trump never picked up the phone that day to order his administration to help. This is not ambiguous. Join us for live coverage and analysis tomorrow from NPR News.
6: Beginning tomorrow afternoon at 2, following the world.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on O'ahu since 1964, committed to helping preserve the island's land, ocean, and culture with its Kahala Initiative for Sustainability, Culture, and the Arts. KahalaResort.com.
0: the success of a new management model at Haena in the northwest point of Kauai. State Parks told us yesterday it is an example of what's gone right in recent years, thanks to the efforts of the community group Maka'ainana Omakana. Uh, that was validated in a recent conversation with Kauai resident John Werheim. We, uh, we last talked to him about his film and book, Taylor Camp, which documented a page in the history of the area before it became a state park. Here's Werheim.
6: Originally, the state condemned Taylor Camp to create this park, and decades went by, and nothing really was done. And then when the state actually did start getting involved in turning it into a park, it was very poorly managed. There were a lot of complaints in the community about the ineffectiveness of the state in enforcing permits rules and regulations, there were all sorts of illegal fishing out there and basically all the Lowy, all these incredible historic Lowy were just being wasted, nothing was done with them. So this community group headed by Presley Wan, there's a whole list of of their Chipper Wickman at Limahuli Gardens and then a lot of the old timers out there many of them who now deceased got together and recreated some of the, the original agricultural resources the the uh, not just the lowe the awai and they started enforcing community based regulations on the fisheries all with the cooperation of DLNR and eventually the DLNR has given them the management of this park and it's they're they've done an amazing job i just came back uh, uh, we had three generations of our family uh in Kalalao week before last and the places never looked better. The illegal campers are pretty much gone. It's just not crowded, it's it's not overused. All the Lowy are back in productions in KA. And this is the the original site of Taylor Camp. So for me it was really like a, a going home in a way to go and work with the HUI and document their great progress and their great achievements just from the mountain to ocean. It's working. It's working. Oh, the fishery is coming back. And, of course, there's a lot of luck involved in this. And and I would say that the biggest, the luckiest thing was the the flood of 2018 which shut down the north shore of Kauai for close to two years.
0: Right, and then that allowed us to come up with a solution that would deal with over-tourism and the other issues that had just been snowballing. Because who could
6: shut no government entity or official would have the guts to shut that place down and it needed to be shut down.
0: Mother nature yeah. <laughs> still well, the reef,
6: you know, you, you didn't have, uh, you know, thousands of tourists at the end of the road slathering sun sand oil all over the reef. The whole regenerative system from the mountains to the ocean just came back and the local people there were able to manage it without the pressures of tourism. And then, following the flood, we had COVID, and that was an additional breather. There were no tourists there, right. and by the time it, it, we were ready to open up to tourism again, this management system was in place, all managed and run, and all employees—they're all almost all—their descendants are the original Hawaiian people of that era. So, so they've got a tremendous blood and emotional and spiritual connection to that land out there. And they're growing taro. The fisheries are vibrant and alive. The water is clean. And it's no longer just a traffic jam of windblown trash and suntan lotion. Yeah, this really
0: was a blessing in disguise. It was wonderful.
6: And these folks out there, the Hui, took advantage a lot of people, you just say, "Okay, you're going to sit back and do nothing." But you know, it was great. We're we're fishing. We got the place to ourselves. No, they worked really hard, and they worked hard with the state, the DLNR, and what they've put together is fabulous. And I'm sure a lot of people want to go and see it now. You got to have a permit, right? Okay, right. so that's the whole thing. There are so reservations, a permit. Uh, Kauai people don't. They have to have a driver's license or some ID. But the only problem we have now is that a lot of people don't do any research. Before they go. Before they yeah, go. Yeah. And, there, and there's a gate there. There are guards there. There are people checking permits. The people who try to sneak around on the beach, well, there's people on the beach looking for Their them. There are, are people <laughs> on the trail. So, please, uh, make reservations. Go there. Enjoy the place. It's just astonishing. And it's, so,
0: this must have been very gratifying then, knowing you know, all the work that you put into the documentation of, of, of Taylor Camp and yeah. putting that exhibit together. Yeah. Seeing new life breathe yeah, into, into it. Yeah, the
6: area. Yes, and also seeing that, uh, you know, originally the whole reason for for literally burning down Taylor Camp was to make this wonderful park that the state had a vision for, but it never happened until local people got involved, and they're involved, and it's fabulous.
0: And so you have another story to tell about Taylor Camp, (laughs) and you're taking the story on the road.
6: Yeah, it was just sort of a serendipitous thing. A musician, a, a symphony musician, Adam Lagasse, from uh, Prague, from the Czech Republic, came to Kauai and he saw the Taylor Camp book and there was a little exhibition there. And he he saw some of the photos and he immediately contacted me and said, would you be interested in exhibiting in the Czech Republic in Prague? And I, I really didn't think it would happen. This was about three years ago. And then of course, you know, we had the pandemic and everything. I said, sure, if you can put something together. I was thinking a little gallery in a corner somewhere. I didn't know what he had in mind or how well connected this guy was. So anyway, we're having a 132 photograph exhibition along with a series of film screenings at the National Library and some of the leading theaters in Prague, plus a lecture series at the university. So this is turned into a giant thing. And the exhibition is in Prague's leading museum space. It's called the Stone Bell House. It's a 13th century castle in the old town square of Prague. They're very excited about this because of the connection, the 1968 connection between the American hippie movement and youth movement. In uh, not just in America, but in the West in general, but it, it, it's very much symbolized by America. But the Eastern European people, the the young people, saw the American hippie as sort of a symbol of liberal Western democracy, and this subculture, this American youth culture, really inspired a lot of the revolution that occurred in Eastern Europe during this time and fulminated, you know, in the uh, downfall of basically the Soviet Union, the destruction of the Berlin Wall. And we're still living it out today in the Ukraine. And I think that it's like history keeps repeating itself over and over again. And what's going on in the Ukraine is, as is, is, you can imagine, is terrifying a lot of people in Eastern Europe. And this Taylor Camp was sort of the ultimate hippie fantasy and symbol of liberal Western democracy. And the timing is so interesting, you know, because the first students, the first refugees to come to Kauai came in 1968 from Berkeley. These were the founders of Taylor Camp, along, you know, with Elizabeth's brothers, Howard, who owned the land. But in 1968, all throughout the world... Not just America, but all throughout the world, there was a radical youth rebellion and revolution all across america. you know, you, you know and, and this was mainly prompted by the Vietnam War, but it was also a result of the civil rights movement of just protests against racism and ironically, of course, one of the leading protest movements was the free speech movement, which is what blew up Berkeley and drove the original students to Kauai, looking just to escape. In the film, we quoted one of the original Taylor Campers has said, we were in Berkeley. It was a horrible time in Berkeley. That people were dying in Berkeley. We would have had to pick up a gun or leave Berkeley, and we left. There was Kent State that year, too. Right. So, you know, four dead in Ohio. Know, right? The, the you know, the great Crosby, Stills, yep. Nash. Ken Soldiers
0: and Nixon's coming. <laughs> yeah,
6: exactly. So this was a horrible time. And this is sort of the theme of the lecture series that I'm giving is... 1968, what happened in 1968 all over the world? So this has been something that I've talked about, I've written about, and I've always been fascinated by, and I could never figure it out because there was also another connection. Mao's Red Guards, the exact sort of opposite but almost like the evil twin of the American hippie. Mao's Red Guards, but there were, it was like if Nixon, when he got caught, went to the SDS, the Black Panthers, the Weather Underground, all these people who were angry at the system, angry at their parents, rebelling, you know, don't trust anybody under 30, and gave them all guns and permission to turn in their professors and their parents. And that's what Mao did in China. So you have then this global... Th- it's just crazy. The 10,000-foot view. It's just yeah. astonishing. So I couldn't understand how could this have happened. You know, this was no Internet. This was the first instance in the 60s when we had satellite communication. You have to understand that when there was a riot in Paris, it was on TV that night or the next day everywhere in the world. And this is the first time in history that that kind of instant communication happened.
0: So you plan to kind of make these connections uh, in your lecture using Taylor Camp?
6: As a symbol. You know, I've always used Taylor Camp just as a microcosm that represented the macrocosm. And Taylor Camp, for me, kind of a, a, a labor of love in a way, because it was a wonderful way for me to tell the story of Kauai before The cultural and economic onslaught of tourism, you know, at the end of the plantation era.
0: That was part of a conversation we had with Kauai resident John Warheim. He just wrote an article for Ho magazine about the new management model at Haena. He's also the force behind a photography uh, exhibit and film about Taylor Camp, which was condemned to make that public park. He's also been tapped to bring a photo exhibit of Kauai and its Taylor Camp hippie history to Prague later this fall. Uh, Warheim says the exhibit is to open in October and will travel through Europe and include lectures and film screenings.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Mānoa, offering an executive MBA. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. I'm Bert Lum Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we find out about a five-year, $20 million NSF grant for the University of Hawaii to study climate resilience talk about how data science plays a key role in determining how climate change impacts resource availability, ecological sustainability, and economic vitality. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
0: In less than two weeks, Hawaii will officially mark Sovereignty Restoration Day. July 31st is the date that the state uh, government will mark a recognition of the first ever national holiday of the Hawaiian Kingdom. HPR reporter Kuve Hireshi joins us to better understand
2: the significance. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, and I just want to start out by saying we should be clear that this (laughs) legislation is recognizing uh, the significance and and supporting observance of July 31st as Lahoi Hoia or Sovereignty Restoration Day, but it is not a paid holiday. You won't get off the hook uh, at work. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, and I think we've we've kind of saw that come in and out, but you know, uh, it is important to to note though that it, it does carry a heavy weight in terms of significance uh, for folks who have tried over the last thirty five or so years to gain some sort of recognition of this being a one, uh, a national holiday of the Hawaiian kingdom, but something that's uh, continually observed today.
0: Well, I heard about it through Dr. Uh, Kikuni Blaisdell.
2: Yes, yes, one of the pioneers, um, along with uh, Hawaiian activist uh, Papa Soli or Soli Hill who really spearheaded uh, this grassroots effort to revive this Hawaiian kingdom holiday in the late 80s. And they founded, as I remember <coughs> Kikuni explaining it, they founded in an old Hawaiian language, or a new Newspaper and started to look into it and realized, oh my goodness, this is uh, something that in 1843, for the first time, was celebrated by thousands of, of folks, not just Native Hawaiians, but people, uh, residents, or citizens of the kingdom at Thomas Square. In Honolulu. So, I want to take us back a little bit in terms of the history of this and what actually happened uh, for those who might not be familiar. So, July 31st uh, was uh, the date back in 1843 uh, where sovereignty was returned to the Hawaiian Kingdom uh, after five months of British occupation. Some have heard the story a rogue British agent uh, earlier in 1843 uh, took over the Hawaiian uh, Kingdom government. And um, Queen Victoria later sent an envoy to say, sorry about that. We're going to take this guy away and, and, and restore sovereignty. And so July 31st was the day in which uh, that sovereignty was actually restored and Hawaiian flag uh, was raised up once again. Uh, King Kamehameha III, Kaui Kioli that year, declared that a national holiday. And it's been celebrated, uh, as we were mentioning, on and off until mm-hmm. the Hawaiian Kingdom uh, was overthrown in 1893 and then kind of just went underground until, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Kekuni and and the folks in the, in the late 80s kind of tried to revive that. So awareness uh, began to spread within the Native Hawaiian community, not just here in Honolulu, but statewide. And, and celebrations are, are now uh, including everything from community work days in the Lo'i, and at fish ponds, uh, to flag raising ceremonies, to discussions on Hawaiian sovereignty, and I think that's a crucial part of the the equation here. Is it's 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 quite symbolic the state's recognition of it. Uh, according to Emy Kalani Winchester, he's one of the organizers of Lahui Hawaii uh, events here in Honolulu. He says it's it's a sign of progress that gives him hope that Hawaiian independence, in some way, shape, or form, is within reach.
5: I think that moving forward is a ho'ike. It is an assessment, it is a showcase of everything that we have been and everything that we are. We have been damaged and fragmented from years of invasive Haole ideology, physical removal, spiritual depression. But we're at a time where we're learning how to restore our lois, to restore our fish ponds, and to restore our identity as a people. And we cannot yet imagine and anticipate just yet what the fish pond looked like, what the lois look like right now. But we know and we believe and we have faith and we have courage to continue to work because we know that one day, one day we're going to be able to enjoy the fruits of our labor.
2: So this is really symbolic. The strength is in the symbol. It is. It is and I think for a lot of folks, um, you know, it for <laughs> a lot of folks that I've spoken to, I mean it's it's not it's not quite a holiday, so it wasn't enough for some for some in the community. I want to uh, specifically talk to or talk about uh, Hawaiian Civic Club leader Le Khan. She's been uh, lobbying the legislature to recognize La Hoyoiea as an official state holiday and also La Kuokoa, Hawaiian Independence Day on November 27th. And uh, I saw her at the bill signing and here's what she had to say. I think what it will take is the will
3: of the legislature. I'm hopeful after this election, perhaps with, with new legislators, maybe who have a better understanding of our history they will understand why these holidays are so important to us and they were holidays in the Hawaiian
2: kingdom we just like to see them restored it's out of respect to the native Hawaiian people so it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't. <laughs> enough I, I think for a lot of yeah, a lot of folks that I've spoken to. But you know, uh, I think uh, there will be celebrations in Thomas Square in Honolulu uh, at the uh, on the thirty first. Uh, there's uh, more information on the La dot hoi org website. But even if you don't make it to any of these celebrations, uh, advocates of this. Uh, this uh, history are, are really just urging public conversations that dive into the history and have discussions about what uh, Hawaiian sovereignty means in this day and age. Just raise awareness. Yeah. And baby steps. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well,
0: thank you so much, Kuvehi. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking with HPR reporter Kuvehi Hiraishi to read more of her stories. Go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We've got a bird for you that you may be more used to seeing on your plate than through your binoculars, but you're sure to recognize their call. Thanks to the Macaulay Library at Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart has your Manu Minute.
7: Wild turkeys are native to North America and were imported to England by merchants from Turkey in the 1500s which is apparently how they got their name. Also known as Pelehu in Hawaiian, they're the first birds brought by Westerners to Hawaii way back in 1788. That original flock may have died out, but they've been reintroduced for hunting on most of the main Hawaiian islands a number of times since then, most recently in the early 1960s on Hawaii Island. Today, wild turkeys can be regularly seen in open woodlands and pastures, usually at higher elevations on most of the islands. Most people know a wild turkey when they see one, but males are much larger than the hens, have black and dark brown feathers with iridescent green bars, and have conspicuous patches of bare skin or wattles under their chin that can change color with their mood. Bright red when excited or blue when nervous or not feeling so good. Males also have spurs for fighting and a thick tuft of feathers dangling from their breast known as a beard, which is likely a status signal to other turkeys. Like many bird species, the females are much duller in color and also lack the spurs and wattle. They lay a clutch of nine or more eggs on the ground, and the chicks are able to forage on their own soon after they hatch, but tend to follow the mother around for a number of weeks. Turkeys of both sexes make a variety of clucks, cackles and yelps to communicate different sorts of information to other turkeys. But that gobble sound that we all associate with turkeys is actually only produced by the male and usually during mating season to let other females know he's in the area. Turkeys mostly eat tender green plant shoots as well as various seeds, fruits, grain, and insects. Because they tend to only be found in disturbed grasslands and woodlands, they likely are not a major spreader of invasive plant species into our native forests like other game birds, such as the calige pheasant. Turkey hunting season is mostly for a month or two in the spring and is popular with both local hunters and tourists, though word is that it takes a decent chef to make them taste good. Otherwise, they're fairly bland, tough, and rubbery. As a bit of a side note, there's been strong scientific evidence over the last couple decades that birds are actually feathered dinosaurs, which means that all dinosaurs didn't actually go extinct. Even more recent phylogenetic evidence shows that the birds most closely related to feathered dinosaurs are in the order known as Galliformes, which includes turkeys. So, when you see a turkey in the wild, you might imagine you're looking at a modern-day dinosaur. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology.
5: Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about porcelain tile by Royal Mosa, made using recycled water and hydroelectric power to create floor and wall tiles inspired by trends in design and architecture.
0: And our turkey in the studio today for the Long View is our contributing editor Neil Milner. Well,
8: <laughs> I hope you gobble up my segment. So, yes. yeah. Well, you. you are. Thank here. you for the fine introduction.
0: <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> you are going to awaken what may be a happy memory for many as we continue amusement parks? or we consider amusement parks and their place in our history?
8: Well, <laughs> it's it's happy and it's also historically significant. So, those of you grandparents and parents. Who, from Hawaii who have schlepped your children and grandchildren to Disneyland and Disney World. You're actually part of history. And it's a very interesting part of history where we've moved from a kind of amusement park to uh, theme parks to things that began to sanitize the idea of amusement. So let's tell the story a little bit. The original amusement parks in the in the United States Uh, were called really basically trolley parks. It's the turn of the 20th century in in the early 1900s, I should say. And what was going on is, I mean, the cities were becoming full of immigrants. They were teeming cities. People lived very close to one another. There wasn't a whole lot of um, cars, for sure. And so the trolley companies figured out that on weekends – they weren't getting enough people to use the electricity that they were, you know, they're running empty cars. And so trolley companies and some beer companies started amusement parks at the end of the trolley line. If you want, if you've ever been to Coney Island and you've taken the queue out there, the, 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 the queue is the subway that ends right in a big uh, subway station at the end of the line. And Coney Island is a couple of blocks away. These things really reflected what cities were like. They were a chance for people to get to get away from the city but easily enough and they reflected values that were pretty much city non-Victorian values. So these places became kind of Uh, raucous and they had movie theaters they had dark places where of course a lot of sexual experimentation went on it was a very kind of open um multi-ethnic to some extent multi-racial but they get some of them become segregated later on place to be it was and and it was kind of liberating for women because they could behave in ways that they didn't behave and there was a lot of objection to that victorian objection that was really the tradition for a long time hawaii had one of these we'll come back to it it didn't last very long but it had some of the same thing it was in in just at the edge of waikiki on kalakawa avenue it had some of the same spirit the end of the trolley car was there the the, the Uh, The bus company said, hey, yeah, we're going to get a lot more people. They had lots of folks that turned out for the opening. It didn't last very long, but they had the same kind of complaints. The Outdoor Circle called this basically a a, a sex-oriented bazaar. It's kind of like you would expect the Outdoor Circle at that time to respond. But what happens, and it happens because of Disney more than anything else, is there is a movement away from the city as being the model as being what you want to focus on and a movement toward locating them away from the city a bit and then, in effect, building your own idea of the future that's got the city as a negative model in in mind. Walt Disney said our model for uh, Disney World was and for celebrity, the county built around it was to be explicitly different and better than the city. And Disneyland never was quite there because even it was fairly isolated, it wasn't separate. Uh, Disney World was. So you had this movement away to, to a very kind of cleansed, modern sort of. Uh, parks that weren't just a, you know weren't just amusement parks. You certainly had a lot of rides. Let's say in Disneyland, if you've ever been there, but you had a dress code. Uh, you couldn't have beards and must. I mean, the uh, paying customers could. If you ever been there, and, and it's costumed. so it's a fantasy, and it's also very cleansed. So you moved. Away from that, Not, uh, it's a little bit different in Hawaii, and that's where we stood now. So when Disney talks about, when you talk about Epcot or Disney World, you're talking about communities that are supposed to reflect values that are better than the city. We can do things better than the city. Right, and, it's yeah. SimCity. Well, <laughs> D- Disney SimCity, except SimCity doesn't get that fantastic tax break that Walt Disney oh, yeah. got when he was able to build uh, Disney World. I mean, Disney went out more or less secretly, not long after... Not long after Disneyland, he started buying land in these areas in Florida. It got QT. wasn't illegal. It was just quiet. And then he got this, essentially, a tax break that says you can run your own city and you don't have to pay taxes for it, which is what he did. That place became a symbol of how areas can be run and controlled. Law enforcement agencies used to turn to Celebrity Florida to learn how to do crowd control.
0: Yeah, I was shocked when I learned that. I was like, wow, I had no idea about that part of history. Of, yeah,
8: well, and it's, you know, it's you can't underestimate the role that Disney Enterprises has played in all of our cultural life and all of our cultural history. So that's where... That was a, a, a big movement away, and we've never returned toward a more city uh kind of amusement park. Can't get the land. People use cars now. So if you've ever been to Six Flags or any of those other ones elsewhere, they're quite different, and they're quite cleansed. The rides are good. They advertise all of that stuff. It's not a place you're going to get on a streetcar or a city bus, city bus to get to. And Hawaii's history is different because there doesn't seem to be a well what happens is that amusement park in Waikiki goes bankrupt after two years then comes back but by 1930 it's gone and this, even in the 30s the, the other cities in America and almost all cities had amusement parks of the, the kind of trolley parks thing they were still pretty much going strong then you have the theme parks which are very different that was the transitional kind of stage and that's taken over in lots of places. They feel very different. But the interesting thing, uh, Hawaii has a lot of theme parks, but most of them are very kind of serious-oriented cultural theme parks. They're places where you can learn in a pleasant sort of way about the history of Hawaii and about the Kanaka Maoli and so on. That's that's kind of different.
0: Yeah, well, it it's really interesting how, um, uh, yeah, you, when you – Kind of look at what's happened across the country and we look at what happened in our state. I mean, we don't have a lot of land
8: to begin with. Well, right? that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's no—it's not a surprise that the water park is out in. Uh in Kapolei, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a short 30-mile ride from East Oahu, <laughs> yeah. right? And so, but yeah, we it's 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 quite different. The cultural ones, Alani is kind of a mixed one. It's a Disney hotel that's mm-hmm. kind of a vertical cultural park because you see the stuff in it. It's got some Hawaiian stuff. It's an attempt to adjust to those things. But these things are not at all like... The old style ones that you saw in Riverview Park in Chicago, or even the one that I grew up in, in in Milwaukee, they weren't they may have been cool places, but they weren't slick places at all. Now they have a kind of slickness to them.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I've only been to like Six Flags and Disneyland, I haven't been to Disney World, but you Universal Studios, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, certainly a place for for good memories growing up as a kid.
8: Yeah, for for us. But the memories are going to be very different for me than they are for, my say, my granddaughter, because they're not. Even if you put them in Disneyland, Disneyland is not at all like State Fair Park or like the park that Walt Disney used to go to in Kansas City, which is the old school park that you took the trolley out and you had sideshow, you know, the sideshows and all this kind of other stuff and weird people walking around.
0: Yeah, it's just uh, yeah, something to think about the, the deeper history, the deeper story behind uh, these amusement parks. Uh, but thank you, Neil.
8: Yeah. Sure hope down. I wasn't a turkey. <laughs> no,
0: all right. Gobble, gobble. <laughs> Thanks so much. You're welcome. Take care. <laughs> that was our contributing editor, Neil Milner, talking about amusement parks in our bi week segment that we called The Longview. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow... We plan to check in with University of Hawaii economist Carl Bonham. We're going to talk inflation. Got a story about inflation that you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our TalkBack line. How do you like them prices? 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works too. talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.